0: How many of you can remember the day that time began to mean something to you? I remember being in first grade in Mrs. Welch's class. And she announced that it was going to be her birthday and she was 30 years old. Oh my. You would have thought we were going to call the undertaker. I had that happen to me when we first moved out here. And our kids were around the table and it was going to be dad's 40th. And I, the kid said, Dad, how old are you going to be? And I said, I'm going to be 40. Oh, no, Dad, you're that old? Are you going to die soon? Oh, <laughs> He's got an eye on my will or something there? I don't know, this kid. You know, everybody thinks about tomorrow, we think we always have it. We think that it's going to come around. I mean, we've been around long enough that we think it's going to come around and we think, oh, there's so many tomorrows left when you're young. But when you're older, you know that you don't have as many tomorrows anymore. And tomorrow is just a day after today, and we're going to run into some times. And we think that it's always going to happen. And Jesus, in his parable of the rich young fool who was going to build barns because he thought he always had tomorrow and that night the Bible said that he was, soul was going to be required of him, that death would come to his door. Peter, if you remember, we're speaking about Peter. And Peter is dealing with these Christians who are being persecuted by Nero. Nero wants to build Rome and his name and glory on it. And so he's been burning it, but he's been using the Christians as scapegoats. And Christians have been getting beaten and burned at the stake. They've been thrown to the lions. All kinds of things are being happened. And, And Peter is encouraging the flock. He says to them, you know, you're God's children. You're chosen by him. You've been saved by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And he has a special purpose for you, even in the midst of the suffering." And I'm going to take, he's going to take care of us. And there are ways in which you're going to have to deal with this society that we're living in. Where you're being persecuted. That you're to submit to the government. That you're to submit to that boss who may not like you as a Christian. You may submit to that spouse that maybe is not a Christian and you're having difficulty with. And that you submit to them. And Peter then goes on to say that your suffering is going to have worth. God is refining you and growing you through this suffering. So use it well. But then, now Peter turns and says, here's another way of dealing with the suffering that you're going through. He says, get a view of eternity, of Christ's coming. That you're waiting in anticipation. With the imminent return that Christ is going to come. And he's going to set the world upside down and he's going to judge it. And that you are going to get a crown from that. You're going to receive joy. And just a little bit longer. And you're going to have to suffer. But Christ is coming. And so Peter begins by telling them how to deal with the crisis. Number one, he says pray. He said the end of things is near. Christ is coming. Therefore, be sound in your judgment. Sober in your spirit. For the purpose of prayer. And what Peter is hearing is that we're to be preparing ourselves for the eminent coming of Jesus Christ. And that the way to do that is by prayer. We don't know the time or the season when he's going to come. But we need to be prepared and we need to be doing what God wants us to do. How many of us have heard time and time again, the end is near? Well, as some of you heard it back in 1947. In the magazine that was talked about the atomic scientist in the doomsday clock. Because we had now this atomic bomb. We also have heard it in 2018. When Gorbachev. I mean Vladimir Putin. Showed in his big to all his leaders. That they have this system now technologically advanced over the United States that can blow up anything and take care of anything and dominate the world and that there's nothing conventionally on this earth that can stop it. The papers, even the New York papers, said, when will this another world war begin? History says soon. And we also know the catastrophe that awaits when Christ will return. Will it be Today. The other night, Sandy and I were watching 60 Minutes and they had Bill Gates on the green effect. You know how that is. Everything's melting away. The world's going to come to an end in 2036 if we don't change the way we deal with the fluorocarbons and the way we deal with all these other things that are going on in our world. And he has this new way of reacting. And, and Bill Gates has, seems, to, he thinks, to have the answer. But the Bible says that Jesus is the only one. God knows the time and the season. No one else knows that. Nobody can predict it. And Peter is telling these people who are being persecuted you pray because you're going to be challenged even right up into that last day and be filled inside of your spirit with the strength that you're going to need and the power that you're going to need. To withstand what's going to come your way. Have the attitude with Christ. And we know why Peter is doing this. You remember Peter? The week before Jesus dies. They have Palm Sunday. Then on their way to the garden Thursday night. What does Jesus say? See, this is why Peter is saying pray. Because he knows the deficiency of not having the power of God in his life because he lacked the prayer. That night, you remember, Jesus comes up and he takes his three leaders, Peter, James, and John. And what does he say? Watch and pray. Because you're going to be led into temptation. The Spirit is willing to, But your flesh is weak. And instead of heeding what Jesus said and prayed with Jesus. They fell asleep. They fell asleep at the switch. Here Jesus warned them. And Peter now is warning his congregation. Because he knows. What happened because he didn't have the spiritual power in him. He didn't have the sound judgment. He didn't have a sober spirit. He panicked. And he panicked so much so that he who bravely and proudly said, Lord, never will I ever deny you. Who as they came to get him, whacked the ear of the servant off, but yet ran. Peter, Mr. Tough Guy, didn't have it in his guts Because he didn't have it in his spirit. Because he hadn't armed himself with the power of the Holy Spirit and with prayer. Wasn't looking to the end. Didn't have eternity in his eyes, but had his comfort and his concern. And you and I know there are many people who look at the end of times. And some of them, they're unbelievably distorted in what they think. You think of those people with heaven's gate, who believed they were going to be taken up and all chewed the poison and died. The unhealthy view of the end times. And Jesus says through Peter, be sober, thinking soundly. How many times in history have there been people who believed they knew the time and they got ready and sold everything, i.e. the Jehovah's Witness in 1912. They were selling property. They didn't need it anymore. We don't even have to look there. We have a fellow in our Bible study Tuesday morning. He had a friend who's Was following Harold Camping, and we used to, my brother and I used to listen to Harold Camping all the time because he was such a great Bible teacher. But Harold got off track, and he began to believe that his church was the only church, and that the end was coming near. And so he told his people sell your stuff, get rid of it, you're not going to need it, give it to your friends who are going to need it. And one of the guys in our Bible study got a check from this friend in New York City. $12,000. And he calls me. He says, Dave, what do I do? He, he's believing camping and he thinks that May 14th is going to be the end of time. And he's not going to need this money, but I am because I'm not in the true church that Harold Camping has. I said, hold on to the check and send it back to him when Christ doesn't come. And when he's going to need it, if he's given it all away, and sure enough, he sent it back to him because he needed it, and he was suicidal. In fact, he even flew to New York to be with this friend. See, that's an extreme. The people of Thessalonica did that, and Paul told them not to. We see that in Luke chapter 12. There was others who believed, ah, he's not going to come. So they got partying and, and, and drunk and had all kinds of wild times and didn't realize that they were wrong. And then we have those people who want to come with the exact map of when Christ is going to come and the exact time And they want to have it laid out that, and I've heard them before. (laughs) Well, yeah, 19, I remember being in a church and one guy said, yeah, June 15th, 1963. And I'm like, what? Because Jesus said it. It's not for anyone to know the times or the season, but the Father in heaven. And they're proclaiming this and showing their maps. And God has it. All under his mystery when he is going to pull it. But in the meantime, the important thing is being sober in spirit. Being sound in our judgment and doing the will of God while we have the time. You see, and that's what Peter is trying to get to these folks. He doesn't need to know when the time is. We need to know what God wants us doing, which is praying vigilantly and getting ready and doing the will of God and that He's coming and there's short time to get it done and that we only have a short time we will suffer. You see, there's an urgency and that's what Peter says. This prayer is urgent. That we need to be on top of it all the time. Isn't it amazing to you? How many of you watch a basketball game or a football game, In the last two minutes it's like the fire alarm is on and everybody is working like a crazy. They're even skipping huddles. And they're, they're lining up in the scrimmage right after bat and going after play after play because they know the urgency of getting a score to win the game. And that's when they become really efficient. They really become integrated and really moving together as a team and giving in extra special. And Peter is saying this is what we need to do with our prayer life. I've seen guys who tried great things, but they refused or they lacked the time. They were too busy to pray and they failed. And Peter is saying, you need a clear mind. You need the power of God. You need to go after it. You need it when you're dealing with all kinds of situations in your life and in your ministry. You need it. When you're dealing with your family and your kids, you need that power. When you're dealing with life experiences, you need that power. Because there are things that will blindside you and things that you won't even understand. This is what happened to me this past week. I found myself in the basement with a person screaming at the top of my lungs, begging for their soul. And I, I, I sit there and go, Dave, what were you thinking? And sometimes we miss the three because we don't have the power of God in us and we miss the shot. How many days are we bombarded with so many other things that we got to do and, th- and then we forget to take the time with God and spend time with him in prayer. I was reading interesting statistics about Christians. The average Christian prays 45 seconds a day and it's usually for food. Blessing the food. The average conservative Christian spends six hours a year praying. Whereas for our hobbies and shopping, we spend 100 hours. For sports events, we spend 120 hours. For vacationing, we spend 140 hours. And I'm not guilting any because I know there's my deficiency sometimes. I don't have to. Or I don't think I have time to pray when I'm just being foolish. I need prayer to do what needs to get done. But you know what happens? We lose our passion. Sometimes it's easy to become cool in our passion towards the Lord. It's like relationships. Marriages. We become cool in our passions towards one another. I was reading about James Dobson, a psychologist, Christian psychologist, and he was saying, "Do you want to go to a restaurant and you see who's married and who's dating? Look who's talking a lot. Those who are dating. The people that are married are just like." Mm, eh, mm, eh. I can remember when I was first dating my wife, we were on the phone. We had just seen each other and we're on the phone. Oh yeah, wasn't that carpet beautiful? Oh, well, uh, After we got married, it's like, hmm, yeah, hmm, hmm. Uh, uh, uh. Same thing happens with our Christian faith. If we don't keep in relationship and keep on top of it, as Peter says, And that we keep excited about it. Then he goes on to say. Now he gets tough. And this is why we need prayer folks. Because this kind of love. is a different kind of love. He says it's a fervent love. Above all. Keep fervent in your love. For one another. Because love. Covers a multitude of sins. Fervent. The word fervent is an athletic term. It's for the person who's running that race and they're getting near the finish time and the ribbon is across and they're stretching themselves as much as they can to hit the line first. That fervency should be in our love toward each other towards our families, towards our children, towards our spouses. And that we truly stretch ourselves in this love that will go beyond our capabilities. And that's why we need the power of the Holy Spirit in prayer so that we can go beyond because look what he says. Because love Covers a multitude of sins. Man. Think about that in relationships. You know. It doesn't overlook them. But it deals with them. But it covers it. Doesn't make a public display of it. Doesn't try to make the person feel intimidated. Doesn't try to make the person feel bad. And put them down but it covers. We see this in Genesis chapter 9. Where Noah, you know Noah, zuta zuta, 120 years building that huge ark. And what's going on? He is preaching and the only people who listen is his family. And when they're going to close the doors, they come in and nobody else listens to him. Frustration. But he saves them. Does a wonderful job of being obedient to God. But right after that, what does he do? He gets to find the wine. Has a little bit too much. Winds up laying naked. And and his young son sees him. He runs home and tells the whole family. And his two older sons, mature sons, who loved their dad immensely, go out and find him and take a blanket and won't even look at him, his shamefulness, and they bat to him with this blanket and cover up his shame. See, this is the kind of thing we as Christians do. Our forgiveness stretches greater and covers over those sins that love people deeply and knows the shame that we would feel if we were in that spot. And so it covers over the sins. And does it time and time again. You know, sometimes when I stand here and we have a young couple wanting to be married, and I'm thinking, oh, these kids don't have a clue. And that train is going to hit them of reality. And the times of forgiveness. The times they need to adjust their life. And to have the power of God. To overcome some of the obstacles that come in marriage. It's tough being married. It's tough being in a home with another sinner. And being a sinner yourself. And having so many differences. And have the ability that love doesn't keep a record of wrongs, love that makes adjustments and doesn't hold on to historical, historical stuff, but forgives and cares, that does bring it up every time that doesn't intimidate that person or remind them of their sin, but blesses them and loves them and encourages them. That's part of the description that Peter is telling us here. It covers that kind of sin and helps that loved one correct that sin and doesn't make a public display. In Matthew's Gospel, he tells us when a brother sins against us, what are we to do? Matthew eighteen. We don't go out and say, "Hey, they hurt me. They did this." No, we don't go on Well, we don't go on Doctor Phil's show. No, we keep it to ourselves, and we go and confront them and talk to them. And if they don't want to change, we find a confidant, maybe even a counselor, a Christian friend that we can go to them and talk to them about this offensive way. And then, if not, then we get more people, but we don't try to publicize their sin. We love them and help them make it right. In 1978, the Gator Bowl, big football game in which Ohio State was playing Clemson. And it was a tough, well-fought battle. And a Clemson player comes flying down the sideline and gets hit and falls right in front of Woody Hayes. And Woody Hayes, who's intensely involved in the game, when the player gets up, he punches the kid coach from the other side that night Ohio State no matter how many accolades Woody A's had how many years of prestigious coaching he had and the winning records that he had got fired and was shamed and disgraced before the whole world to see and watch it played again and again on news media and news watches and all those other sports shows. And he was in the dumps. But there was going to be a banquet a month later of all the football coaches for the NCAA and also professional NFL coaches. And the lead speaker was Dallas Cowboys head coach Tom Landry. And Tom Landry called the committee and said, I'd like to bring a special guest. And they said, well, who? He said, I want to bring Woody Hayes. And then Tom Landry got up and spoke. Spoke about forgiveness. How we all make mistakes. And how he took and worked at lifting up this discouraged, broken, feeling, ugly, ugly, person because of Christ and Tom's heart. It's the same thing that Jesus did for us with the filth and the dirt in our hearts. When in the Bible it says and God demonstrated his love toward us. And while we were yet dirty rotten scoundrel sinners Christ died for us and gave us eternal life. Peter says, we got to love that way. Then we have to go on and be hospitable. That means we have to open our hearts up to others to give them and to care for them and to care for their needs. And he says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Don't grumble with it. In fact, the Greek word is "guzmon," and it, it sounds like it's an autopoetic word that sounds like you're just grumbling. And he says, you be hospitable. Open your heart to them. And hospitality is healing and, and, and anointing and, and lifting up and encouraging. That's what hospitality is. It's acts of kindness to that's what a hospital does. We bring them in and we bandage them up and get them back on their feet again. A lot of people in our society today think their homes are their castles and their tokens of them making it in the big world. And the Bible says, no, your home is to care for your family, but also to be a ministry instrument, tool, Where you can encourage and lift up people who are broken. It's not a showroom of the furniture you have or the garden that you have or the playground you put up. It's it's a place where people can find healing, it's the single best tool that you have to do evangelism in Christian ministry have people over for lunch. I remember taking in a prostitute for supper in our home in New Jersey. Josh was maybe one years old. But this girl had no kindness in her home. They hated her. But she had no place to stay. Kind words were not given to her because they all knew what she was and what she did. They were embarrassed of her. We would take her in once in a while and have supper with her and she couldn't believe how nice it was, quiet it was, how enjoyable it was to be in a home Worked in New York. Great things. They were there for community. And the feeling that they had in our home that they never experienced before. I remember my poor wife, she had to get up and go to New York the next morning and be up on a bus at 7 o'clock. And here we had people not leaving the house till 11, 11.30. I almost thought about just putting my pajamas on and tell them to turn the heat down when they're ready to go. But they loved being there because they didn't have anything like that. Some of them were going home alone to a empty house. One girl came to our home one night crying. She had a brother who embarrassed her. Her dad was an alcoholic. That was embarrassing enough and that home was always in disarray and dysfunction and the mother ignored it And the dad, we never knew what type of mood he came in. And she was grateful when he went off to work. He worked the night shift so she didn't have to hear his complaining and screaming and yelling. And her brother, one brother, that night, I remember it was Christmas Eve. And he left the house dressed up in drag and he was going to do a show in New York City at a, a, one of these nightclubs. And she so was embarrassed because the neighbors saw him coming out of the house. And she lived in that dysfunction. And yet when she came to our house, she saw much comfort and peace. She just wanted to stay. Because her heart was broken by the world of her life. And even knowing Christ, it broke her heart to see her loved ones that way. And when she felt the hospitality, that love. You see, we're living in a world that oftentimes is loveless. Think about this, what happened just the other day in this city where an accident happens and a woman gets out of her car with a gun and shoots somebody. What is wrong with our world? It's loveless. It's it's insane. And here she felt it. She felt that love, the hospitality. She felt secure. She felt at home. You know, and, and, and it's wonderful, the Bible, it shows us that like in Genesis 18 where Abraham brought in these strangers, and here they were angels. And in Hebrews, the Bible tells us that we, when we bring in strangers and, and we help bandage them up and help heal them, we are possibly entertaining angels ourselves. And they need to feel that hospitality and that love. Today, she's a corporate executive in a southern state of a large corporation. She's high at the top. And she first felt that love, though, in our home in front of the fireplace with the other young people that were there and the need for support and love. And then finally, Peter tells us not only prayer, Not only being ready, but also not only hospitality, but employ the gifts you've been given. Peter says each one of us has been given a gift. As each of you received a special gift, that's you and me, employ it in serving one another as goods towards the manifold grace of God. God has given each one of us gifts. I've learned in my own ministry experience that sometimes I just don't have any talent or in certain situations and when I am faithful to God to do what he calls me to do, he will give me a special gift to minister to that situation that I never thought I ever had. He says, whoever speaks is to do so as one who's speaking the utterance of God and whoever serves another beautiful gift of service it's to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. It's God supplying it. So that in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To whom belongs the glory and dominion. This is the way we glorify God. By using the gifts that God has given to us. By doing it in service. These spiritual abilities that he called us to. To be part of his team. You know, and sometimes people say, well, some people got bigger gifts. No, everybody has a gift and they're all important to God. And an illustration of that is very simply from our world. You take an athlete, like was in the Super Bowl, Patrick Mahomes, tremendous athlete, great quarterback. But guess what? He didn't play that well. You know why? Because the five guys who nobody knows their names, those linemen, weren't giving him the time to throw those passes that he needed to throw. He was constantly being chased in the backfield. And Tom Brady, who had five other guys in front of him who nobody knows their names, would set up and begin to throw the ball to the receivers he wanted to throw them to. And here, you see, it's not only the quarterback who's important, but it's the guys who we don't even know their names that were important to protect him to get the job done. And all God's gifts and the things He gives us are important whether it's teaching a class or setting up chairs or cutting the lawn or whatever God has called you to do to cooperate in the body of Christ and that each one of us has gifts. God's given them to you. And even if you don't have the gift, you may get it if you're put in a position where God wants you to serve somewhere and you think, I can't do that. And he'll say, I'm giving you the gift to it. I've learned that God got gifts for you and for me. And the more and more I stretch myself in love, as God called me through Peter here, that you will get a gift to do that. And Peter is saying, use your gift for the glory of God. Employ in serving who? Yourself? No. And that's what bothers me about some people who feel that they've got certain gifts in our world. <laughs> well, I got this gift. I got nothing, that's not what it's about. Look what it's about. It's about serving other people. That's why you have the gift. And whether it's cleaning or counting offerings or stacking chairs, it's giving you thousands of ways God uses us. And the question comes here, Peter says, how are you using your gift? Are you employing it? Are you serving Are you serving it with the strength God supplies? Do you realize that you're needed with your gift to serve other people, to help others? You see, when Christ came to this earth, he was incarnated in a body. When he left this earth, he incarnated himself now in the body of Christ the church, us, through the Holy Spirit. And he wants us to use our gifts and be him out in the world. World War II in France. In the city, in the middle of the city, they had a a, 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 a statue of Jesus. And when it got bombed, this statue got broken apart. And after the war, they went to cement it and put it back together. But they couldn't find the hands. Some of it, one hand was broken apart that they were gonna have to make a new one. And the other one they couldn't find. And one night, a plaque was put in front of that. And it said, He has no hands but yours. And that's what it's about. We're his hands. We're his feet. He's filled us with the Holy Spirit and gifts us to do it. And it's not earth-shaking, but it will shake the earth as we open ourselves up in helping other people. And I know most of you do. And that we do it today. There's an old fable about Satan bringing in some of his demons to have a very important meeting. And he said, Look, you know, these Christians, we got to cripple them, we got to stop them doing stuff. And he says, Any ideas? And one guy says, Hey, I know. Let's tell these Christians that there's no God. Satan said, that's not going to work. They're all believers. They have Jesus in their heart. They want to serve him. Another demon smiled and said, I got it. Let's tell them there's no hell. He said, look, half the people in church don't believe in hell anyway. What's the big sweat? They're not going to. And if they're strong believers, they're going to believe in it. But then the third devil, <laughs> little demon, got a big smile. He says, he says, you know what? Tell the church there's no hurry. They got all the time in the world. And Satan says, that's good. Because that'll deceive millions. And many who need to hear about Jesus will never hear it. Let's pray together. Lord, today we come to you and we're so grateful that you are in control of time. The exact time in which you come, you have. Help us in this time as we're waiting, Lord, to look forward to that day but also to keep our hearts and minds and bodies to the grindstone. Empowered by a relationship deep with you in prayer. That our hearts are filled with this love that's fervent love, that's big love. And that, Father God, that we have a hospitality, that we want to open our hearts to help heal people and bring them a new life in you, Christ, and make them feel comfortable. And that, Jesus, that we will take and use the gifts that you've given to us and poured in us for your glory every day until death death takes us out of this life. And it's in your name we pray this, Jesus. Amen. Please rise for the benediction and singing of our closings. And now go in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, your Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit now and forever. Amen.